the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Ah, yes, indeedy, and a pleasant good afternoon to you. Welcome to this 26th day of... September, it is a Tuesday and another edition of Lifeline unfolding before your shell-like ears as we are here Monday through Friday from 5 until 7 p.m. addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. One of the big stories that we are going to be following this evening will be the ongoing four-alarm fire in the Oakland Hills. Got to go back a lot of years to the Oakland-Berkeley Hills fire. I want to say 1991, somewhere along there. Still lingering memories for many long-term Bay Areans. So when you hear fire and Oakland and Hills all in the same sentence, it certainly sets one back on their heels. Roy Cruz is in the KFAX Traffic Center and will keep us surprised of not only the conditions there, but as well the traffic conditions, particularly along 580 there in that Oakland corridor. Temperatures warm and will continue to stay so throughout the balance of this week. So I guess Indian summer has finally arrived. Kind of thought we were done with these high temperatures, but apparently not so, at least for a while. Okay, let's get down to cases here. Um, Speaking of weather, today marks one month and one day since Hurricane Harvey made landfall at Rockport, Texas. And of course, in its wake and a whole series of other hurricanes, it's been a pretty frightening year um, along the Gulf Coast, to be sure, between the the impact of Hurricane Maria, Hurricane Irma, Hurricane Harvey in southeast Texas. The devastation there, 100,000 homes damaged or completely destroyed. And it will take months, if not years, to completely rebuild. To get a look at this ongoing process and, most importantly, relief efforts that are in place to help folks. We're joined by Brock Christberg. Brock is an international disaster response manager on behalf of Samaritan's Purse. And Brock, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for taking the time to talk. This has got to be one of the most challenging seasons that your organization certainly has faced insofar as not just the impact of Hurricane Irma, Hurricane Harvey, but now looking at much of the devastation that's taken place um, uh, throughout parts of the Caribbean, um, certainly our hearts go out to the people of Puerto Rico that are into uh, the beginning of week number two uh, shortly without any electric power there. G- give us a sense in terms of just your your perspective on how severe, how widespread the devastation, the pictures we're seeing, of course, on television are all shocking. Sure. You know, it's been an interesting season because we had Hurricane Harvey, Irma, and Maria. And Maria is the one that just recently hit Puerto Rico. And so uh, it's um, across the Caribbean, there's been uh, really widespread devastation. Um, we, the Caribbean, most of the islands don't have the infrastructure that uh, many of the cities, most cities in the U.S. do. So when you have a hurricane that comes comes through, 
it destroys everything in its path. Uh, path. And in Puerto Rico, um, there's uh, the majority of the country is flooded. There's no power. Um, you know, there are very long queues, one to two kilometers for fuel, long queues for food. And so the, the need is, is, is so big there in Puerto Rico and other islands um, in the Caribbean. And undoubtedly, many relief organizations, not just Samaritan's Purse, but certainly at the government level, have got to be stretched pretty thin right now. Certainly. I mean, with three hurricanes coming in in a short amount of time, it, it definitely does stretch uh, the government and relief organization. And Samaritan's Purse has really been blessed with the resources to be able to respond um, in, in Houston, in Florida, and uh, five islands in, in the Caribbean. So we are stretched, but we do have, fortunately, do have the resources to, to meet the needs, both physically and spiritually, in, in the Caribbean and in Houston and uh, in Florida. Now, Brock, currently you are in the Samaritan's Purse headquarters there in North Carolina. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. What reports are you hearing in terms of the degree of devastation and and the impact short-term? I mentioned, for example, approximately 100,000 homes either destroyed or certainly severely damaged um, in the Houston area. But then we're hearing these stories about no power in Puerto Rico. Um, There are some areas throughout the Caribbean, I understand, that have no potable water whatsoever. So you've not only been providing generators, but I understand even desalinization equipment um, for some of the Caribbean islands that, that, quite frankly, are struggling to even provide some of the basics. What are some of the reports that you're getting in these various areas from the field in terms of just how the average day-to-day person is coping with all of this? Yeah, it's, it's, it's challenging. And, and uh, as you said, there's no clean water because when the hurricane comes in, it, it uh, contaminates the, the drinking water with salt. And so there aren't areas where people can go and collect water or uh, the units that produce clean water are, are not functioning. And so we are working with communities on the island to uh, desalination, so making purifying it from, from the salt. So we're working with communities and the government to, to be able to provide clean water. But I've seen pictures where people are cutting bamboo trees in half and having it filter from a, from a, a waterfall into a big, large carrying container. So people are doing what they have to do in order to survive, uh, to, to, to be able to have clean water. And most of the roofs on some islands is up to 80%. Uh, of the houses you can no, you can no longer live in, and so we're going in and, and providing temporary solutions to uh, to get their houses so they can move back in. So we're providing tarp so they can go in and at least have a place uh, a, a, a dry place to uh, to lay their head at night. And this import, of course, is important because while they're enjoying uh, warm temperatures down there, we know that, you know, here we are at the end of September, and before you know it, winter will be upon us. So the time that they have in order to be able to secure a place that is safe to uh, to be able to sleep and take care of their family is, is dwindling, isn't it? It is. And, you know, it's what I was told is hot and sticky right now. So on top of uh, no water, no power, very little communication, being able to, uh, to communicate to the outside world. It's very hot, very, uh, uh, it's a very challenging place to be right now and to operate for, um, you know, the people who are living there, but also people who are helping and supporting the relief effort to really 
to help people pick up the pieces um, after this, after all of the hurricanes and move on and start to move on with, with their lives and rebuilding their lives. How long do you think that process realistically is going to take? And I know that's a difficult estimation. Uh, we've heard, for example, Barbuda's Prime Minister Gaston Brown recently called the island, quote, literally rubble. And you hear about yeah. the totality of the devastation in so many areas between Houston and the Florida Keys and the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. And, 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 we, and we haven't even mentioned other areas further south. I'm thinking of the poor people in Mexico there uh, mm-hmm. and, and the damage there. Uh, just in terms of, of being able to make a level of recovery that people kind of feel like there's a return to normalcy. Can you hazard a guess? We're talking months, we're talking years, what? Uh, most in the, I would say in the Caribbean years. I mean, there are some islands that have been completely wiped out. Uh, it, there's a, a small island called Barbuda, and that hit, uh, Hurricane Irma uh, had a direct hit on it, and everything was wiped out. So um, all of the people have actually moved off of the island because it was you couldn't live on it. And so people are beginning to return now to rebuild, and we've committed um, to that island to help to be a catalyst to help people move back to the island. And so it's going to take a long time, um, some islands shorter than other, but it's going to take years in order to to rebuild um, those uh, those homes. And, and, and Samaritans First has provided over nearly four hundred and fifty thousand uh, pounds of relief supplies in order to just begin to help them to to move forward with the rebuilding process. And this really, as you suggest, is a process that's going to take a lot of time and a lot of prayer. Um, There's not much here in California that we can compare the experience to. I mean, aside from earthquakes, and we really haven't had any severe ones to speak of, I mean, beyond the Napa earthquake a couple of three years ago, not much really along the lines of certainly uh, Loma Prieta of 89. You have to go back that far. So it's difficult for us to even relate to the impact and the time that it's going to take for people to be able to recover and have some sense of normalcy return to their family lives. If you want to get more information about the ongoing work and ministry of Samaritan's Purse, you can do so online at samaritanspurse.org. That's samaritanspurse.org. That's Brock Kritzberg reporting from Samaritan's Purse's headquarters there in North Carolina with the latest news and recovery efforts, not only in Houston, but throughout the Florida Keys and the Caribbean. All right, let's bring things closer to home. 516, we'll head over to the KFAX Traffic Center. Roy Cruz has the latest. Roy. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We've talked a lot about the issue of marketplace evangelism. In fact, um, teachers and evangelists like Ed Silvoso have been on this program a lot down through the years helping us to better understand what that looks like to essentially bring our faith into the marketplace and to impact the realm around us. And I certainly applaud any believer that does so. In fact, I think we have an obligation to do so. But what happens when things get taken a little bit too far? What exactly are not only your responsibilities as a believer, but then, too, your responsibilities as an employer? While it is true that there are many important benefits to marketplace evangelism, it all has to be done with a sense of, I think, respect at the end of the day and with consideration for limitations for the law. Now, that sword cuts both ways, meaning that not only does your employer need to respect you, but you need to also respect your employer. Let's talk about the case of Shepherd Healthcare. 
that's been in a whole lot of hot water recently by violating federal law in firing an employee because she would not be excused from daily morning Bible studies in the workplace, in a secular business. All right, what about that? We're joined by constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. And uh, Brad, typically the equation works the other way around, where the employer fires somebody because um, they're uh, sharing their faith at work, or maybe they've been proselytizing in the break room, or they're walking around with, uh, you know, uh, religious uh, jewelry on, or have a big Bible on their desk, and the employer wants to sort of sanitize the workplace from all of that and make it as non-sectarian as possible. This is actually just the opposite, where the employee wish to be excused from daily in-office Bible studies, and the employer refused. Yeah, it's uh, it's unusual to, to hear these kinds of cases, uh, because usually it's the other way around. Uh, an intolerant employer who's trying to, uh, as you say, sterilize the workplace from faith and uh, not letting a, an employee uh, read a Bible during lunchtime or have a Bible in a private cubicle. Uh, but this is interesting because this uh, this case involves an employer that was allegedly uh, mandating all the employees to attend a Bible study at work, and it's, there's nothing illegal about having a Bible study for all the employees to attend, so long as the for-profit business uh, reasonably accommodates those employees who, for religious reasons, uh, do not wish to participate. And that's the, the apparent problem, based on the facts of the cases that have been reported, is that this employee... Uh, decided, look, I don't want to be participating in this Bible study. Uh, it's not my faith. It's not my beliefs. It goes against my beliefs. And allegedly, the employer did not reasonably accommodate and allow the employee to opt out. And that seems to be where the real rub here is uh, legally and uh, while, uh, and why this, this case uh, is uh, and not in the best of, of uh, circumstances for the employer. And I have to wonder why the employer didn't potentially see this coming. I mean, at, at the end of the day, um, workplace discrimination is one of the big buzzwords. You want to keep an environment that's uh, harassment-free and discrimination-free and to make sure that you're treating everybody uh, equally and not heavy-handed with certain employees or, you know, showing favoritism because of the potentiality of discrimination lawsuits. And all of this goes back to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 so that the employer did not see this as a potential problem is really kind of shocking, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. And, and, you know, the interesting thing is there's, there's solid case law out of the state of Washington, uh, the Ninth Circuit, where uh, an employer had a mandatory you know, Bible study prayer time, and the employee quit, sued, and the employee lost because the, the judge said that the employee has an obligation to let the employer know of their religious objections so that they can be reasonably accommodated. And they held that employers are free to fully... Uh, live their faith, reflect their faith in their workplace in so many ways, but if, and, and it's the employee's obligation to let the employer know, hey, this activity or this thing over here violates my faith, can you reasonably accommodate me? And that's why Pacific Justice Institute has prepared a uh, training video that they can download for free right from our, our uh, website for, for business owners and managers on all about how they can legally evangelize their employees, their customers, and their community and uh, this is available without charge uh, on our website at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. Let's talk about some of the basics here, Counselor, because 
Um, there's nothing in this story out of Texas that at the end I would hope would, would have too much of a chilling effect on employers that, that want to be able to engage in that sense of marketplace evangelism. But there there are limits to it. And, and I guess you have to be particularly cautious when you're dealing with employees that could then come back and raise a case of discrimination if, for example, you failed, as in this case, to provide reasonable accommodations or there's a sense that you are being compelled to engage in religious activities and then six months down the road the review process comes and because you pushed back you don't get the raise but somebody else who did participate does. Uh, you know, you, you can really walk into a pretty quick uh, legal quagmire here, can't you? Oh, it, it's, it's so true. But the good news is that if people are trained and they know what to do, then they can have fully re- robustly reflect their faith in their workplace and at the same time not have to, to worry about losing uh, in a lawsuit um, if they, they carry out and they do it correctly. But there's so much opportunity there. And in, in reality, you know, true Christianity is one that does want to be respectful uh, to people who, uh, you know, are not ready or don't feel comfortable. We want to be, you know, it's, 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 uh, we, it, Christianity it necessitates a free society. And of course, um, employers, generally speaking, uh, would want to reasonably accommodate an employee, um, because of that and uh, not wanting to, to force someone, uh, to, to have a religion or to, to be religious is a very important part of true Christianity. Is it safer or maybe safer and healthier, now that I think of it, if there's going to be, for example, uh, prayer meetings or maybe a brief daily Bible study that we differentiate between something that is employer-initiated versus employee-initiated just because the relationship is different. And when the boss says, hey, we're having prayer tomorrow at 7 a.m. before we start work, you know, it, it's kind of hard to feel as if you can't go without somebody either talking behind your back or wondering whether or not your lack of participation is going to have some bearing on future uh, raises or future advancement opportunities. And so how do you handle something like that? Well, first off, employers should always have annual uh, reviews, employee reviews with objective measurements to uh, to have an accurate record of how employees are doing and performing. Um, so if they are, so they can be able to justify why one employee got a raise and one didn't. Second, we do encourage, like if you have like a, a Bible study there in, in the workplace, uh, it should not, generally speaking, not be led by the, the business owner. It's best, actually, and it's led by... Um, an employee that's a, a lower ranking uh, is not in management, or even better yet, if it's someone from the outside, a pastor, or even better, someone from a, or, uh, from a ministry like Marketplace Ministries, um, where they come in and they do the Bible study, and it's a real nice, healthy firewall shield, if you will, uh, that can really create uh, protect against a lot of uh, misunderstandings and lawsuits. So there's great ways to do it, and we talk about that in our training video, which is, once again, uh, without charge if people want to download that for free. Counselor, this sword, as I suggested in my introductory remarks, cuts both ways. 
in that there are not only concerns about a case where, as an exists this example out of Texas, where the employer was compelling employees to participate in a daily Bible study, and the Bible study included conversations apparently about how biblical principles that are discussed or shared during that Bible study could be used in employees' personal lives. I'm thinking, boy, we really we we pushed the envelope and then we pushed it again. But the other side of this equation is. What of just the opposite happening, where an employer is um, attempting so much to sanitize the workplace from any religious influence, or let's say the employer is a secular organization and wishes to remain that way, and now suddenly is preventing employees from exercising any of their religious rights. I want to play off of that for a moment. Can you stay with us for a couple of minutes? Oh, you bet. All right. We're going to take a brief time out because we need to get you an update on traffic with this four-alarm fire in the Oakland Hills, and then we'll come back to more of our conversation. Constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus, is with us tonight. We are discussing a case of an organization called Shepherd Healthcare that violated federal law when it fired an employee because of a repeated request to be excused from a daily morning Bible study within the organization. And apparently she's not the only employee to be impacted by this. Um, The EEOC got involved, and um, needless to say, this does not bode very well for Shepherd Healthcare. But as much as this is a case where an employee wishes not to participate in religious activities of any sort in the workplace, what about the employer who says, you're not allowed to bring a Bible and read it at your desk because somebody could be offended? Or what about the employer who says you're not allowed to be in the break room um, to have a meal and to uh, quietly pray uh, over your meal because you might potentially offend another employee? Are there limits there, too? We'll talk about that next as our conversation with constitutional lawyer Brad Dacus continues right after this. All right. As promised, over to the KFAX Traffic Center. Roy Cruz has got the latest. Roy. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to the conversation. We've been talking with constitutional lawyer Brad Dacus from the Pacific Justice Institute about a case down in Texas, a company called Shepherd Healthcare, that violated federal law when it fired an employee because of her repeated requests to be excused from a daily morning Bible study. Okay, so that's the employer compelling the employee. What happens when the situation is completely reversed? Maybe you're listening right now and you've run up against this. A co-worker at work hassles you because you read the Bible at your desk during your breaks, or maybe you bring the Bible into the break room with you, or you've been seen praying. What exactly are the guidelines when it comes to your faith in the public arena? What can the employer insist or prevent you from doing How far does all that go? And toward that end, uh, Counselor, let's spend a moment talking about that. For example, uh, we've we've heard cases, and this happens in public schools too, where somebody sees an individual at the table in the kitchen praying before their meal, even if it's just quietly and silently to themselves. It's obvious to those around them that this person is praying God's blessing over the meal and they get offended by it. Can an employer rightfully tell you not to do that? No, they really can't. And the reason is because employers need to, once again, reasonably accommodate the sincerely held religious beliefs and practices of their employees. So if an employee wants to pray over their lunch, uh, or let's say the employee is in the lunchroom talking with another employee and they have their, their Bibles open and they're 
having a little mini Bible study there. They're not making a commotion. Um, we've seen that attack before, but in actuality, uh, those employees should be respected and accommodated. They're not interfering with the work. Uh, this is their, 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 their time of fellowship. And uh, we've seen it you know, at times when employers have tried to punish the employees. We had a, a case um, you know, a number of years ago that I was involved in where uh, there was an em- employee who was uh, working for a government agency, and, uh, and he was told he couldn't have a Bible or religious items on his private you know, cubicle where um, outsiders didn't, you know, weren't, weren't getting services from him. It was just right there in his little private cubicle. Only fellow workers would see it walking by. And uh, they, they, we, it ended up having to go to the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit said, hey, uh, State of California, you cannot um, treat employees like this. You can't uh, tell them that they can have personal items in their in their private cubicle, uh, but they can't have anything that's religious uh, unless they're servicing outside customers who might feel intimidated uh, because of those religious items. So um, there's a lot of protection, and we at Pacific Justice have helped so many uh, in the workplace, uh, particularly those who work for the government, which happens to be the most hostile intolerant employer when it comes to uh, religious people. Not surprising there at all. Now, I'm curious in terms of just an overall um, sense of guidelines or limitations. Uh, we, we don't want to um, ever quench somebody's enthusiasm for sharing their faith. At the same token, you are in a workplace. There is a sense of decorum that needs to be respected, I think. And there's also the sense that it's important to um, reach your your fellow workers with love and with kindness and not to feel like they're being bashed over the head. And sometimes that's a very fine line. And what you might think is, is something perfectly innocent and loving and tender and acceptable, uh, somebody else might come along and find it over the top offensive because they feel as if you're you're uh, you're really uh, you know bible bashing is the is the term I think. And so give me a sense in just in terms of the the overall sensitivity that we need to use. I've heard cases where somebody doing something as innocent as saying, "Hey, would you like to come to my church this Sunday? We've got a special speaker or the kids are putting on a special music program and employers have said, "No, you can't do that." Uh, all the way up to restrictions on things like passing out bible tracts. Right, and, and employers that say that to employees, no, you can't ever invite anyone to church or can't ever invite anyone to the Christmas play. Um, the employer is in the wrong in that scenario. Now, sometimes employees will just, you know, they don't want to push it because sometimes God doesn't lead us to lay claim to our rights but relinquish our rights at times. Um, and Paul did that. Sometimes he laid claim to them, sometimes he didn't. Uh, but it, it's, it's true. The employee uh, generally has an uh, opportunity to be able to discuss their faith and share their faith or invite people to their church. The same way they would talk about a football game or invite someone to a football game, if, however, in a, the other person uh, gives them a, uh, the signal that they, so that they, that they can reasonably understand they're not interested, then they need to back off and not continually bombard, you know, uh, ask them again and again and again. That becomes harassment, but uh, that's actually very rare. Just for a Christian to have enough um, and, uh, initiative just to ask once um, is... Uh, uh, is is a wonderful accomplishment that I, I uh, that uh, it would be um, uh, wonderful to be the norm, but it, it isn't. So, uh, bottom line is, employees can share their faith. They can invite people to church. They just have to be respectful to back off uh, when they uh, when they realize that the other person is not interested uh, in uh, engaging. I went to a local fast food restaurant with a couple of colleagues today. 
The restaurant shall remain nameless. Um, and uh, I went into the men's room to wash my hands and found si- uh, sitting in there uh, one of those little chick uh, broadside uh, pamphlets. Uh, folks have been around for 100 years like me will know what I'm talking about. They're, they're cartoon pamphlets that, that tell a Bible story of some sort or an evangelistic message. Uh, they've been around for years and years and years. And I thought, how nice that that was in there. And I thumped through it real quickly and said, okay, I'm going to leave it there uh, for hopefully a customer that will come in and be, and be ministered to by that. Uh, can an employer specifically prohibit employees from doing things like passing out a written invitation or a Bible track, things of that sort, on the job at the workplace? Yeah, the the employer can say, uh, look, I don't hand out any personal uh, material to anyone else here in the workplace. Uh, this is professionals' workplace. So long as their their policy is one uh, which is not uh, just anti-religion and anti-religious. So, in other words, uh, if if, that, if my if my em, uh, fellow employee comes in and they're you know raising uh, I don't know money for the school uh, band trip to uh, to go to a competition and they're selling candy bars in the kitchen uh, and the employer permits that um, they can't prohibit me from bringing in candy bars because I'm raising money for an Awana club thing, can they? Right, exactly. They they have to uh, to not be hostile uh, to people of faith. They need to treat them the same. And, the, and have the rules enforced equally and fairly. I will say this, if the employer wants to themselves put out uh, gospel tracts, uh, they can do that uh, as much as they, they, they can do that. If the employer says, look, I don't want any gospel tracts to be given out, and an employee Christian, I don't want gospel tracts uh, put here in the front area or in the restrooms, then the employee needs to respect that. So there is a lot of discretion employers have, um, but it needs to be done uh, neutrally and not in a way that just... Uh, specifically attacks religion or religious materials. All right. This subject matter, of course, goes much deeper. And uh, toward that end, folks want to navigate over to pacificjustice.org. You mentioned about the instructional video there. Is that beneficial for both employers and employees, Brad? Yes, it is. It really is. And it gives great instruction and and, and enlightenment and empowerment uh, to, uh, to people to really glorify God through their businesses or where they work and uh, but in particularly the employers and the managers, uh, they're the ones who really needed the education, so that's what it's it's actually leaning towards. But there is information that is also very helpful for employees. All right, and it's obvious where to find it once they get to your website? Yes, that's right, specificjustice.org, and it's under the, on the, the top. They'll see resources, and uh, they'll see a number of different resources uh, up there, and uh, videos, uh, books, and it's, it's a video, uh, two-part video, Faith in the workplace, faith in the workplace, and uh, it's it's really easy to have uh, make access. Uh, All right, available. Check it out online. Faith in the workplace is the name of the video series available for the viewing at PacificJustice.org under the resources tab. That's PacificJustice.org. Look for faith in the workplace. And we thank Brad Dacus for being in the radio place here today. Brad, of course, is the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute on the web at PacificJustice.org. 5.45, the clock tells me. Time to head back over to the KFAX Traffic Center to get you another update on this Tuesday ride home with Roy Cruz. Roy. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I know during the campaign cycle here, we've heard a lot made about making America great again. But my first guest, I think, would argue that what really challenges us 
is not simply a notion of making America great again, and I'm not sure what that means nor what that process is, but I can tell you this. If we take into consideration the observations of de Tocqueville back a century plus ago into America and her greatness at that time, let me suggest that perhaps the greater issue at foot here, the bigger challenge that is faced by this nation today is not an effort toward making America great again, but rather making America righteous again. If we can make America righteous again, then the making of America great again will naturally flow. Our first guest is the editor of First Things, an ecumenical Christian journal based out of New York City. He is a theologian, has a Ph.D. in religious ethics from Yale University, and the author of a brand-new book just released by our friends at Regnery Publishing called Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society. Dr. R.R. Reno, great to have you on the program. It's good to be with you, Craig. What about this, this idea? I mean, that making America great again, I mean, it's, that's a noble idea, but that seems to kind of be the end game. It really doesn't give us any insight in terms of what is the game plan to take us there. Well, not just that, but great. I mean, great presumably is more than just richer, right? I mean, we have to have some noble ideal to which we're striving if, it, if the greatness is to be more than just more stuff. Um, so we need to have some vision in mind of what it means to have, to have a great society. And, and I, in my book, I try to make a case that we need to have some transcendent orientation as a people, and that in our history, that transcendent orientation has been provided by Christianity. And so we need to renew, or uh, I use the term resurrect, the Christian character of our society if we're going to get out of the troubled state that we're in. And, of course, the irony is um, many of the great observers and thinkers out there that have pondered America and her quote-unquote greatness down through um, the last couple of centuries have, yes, pointed to uh, industrialization and our economic proudness, things of this sort. But they've also highlighted quite vigorously America's sense of compassion and integrity, our, our work ethic, hard work, responsibility, all of these ideas that are really the underpinnings of, I think, what is the ultimate um, product of this sense of greatness, and that is that from our sense of compassion and in hard work and integrity and responsibility and all these other deals and, and embracing of freedom and all that that means flows the end result or the benefit of economic greatness, but absent all of these other points that I just mentioned, I have to wonder if economic greatness is even possible anymore. <laughs> no, you're quite right. I mean, you mentioned Alexis de Tocqueville at the outset, and he was very worried about the way in which a democratic culture tends towards mediocrity, and not just mediocrity, but a kind of license and, um, you know, a lack of a lack of vigor, and maybe maybe we're kind of experiencing that today. But he recognized that in the United States, Christianity provided countervailing force. It tended to unify people who are otherwise, you know, um, divided in an individualistic society like ours. It tended to uh, organize people towards sort of the common good, and as you said, it it generates. Um, an imperative to 
lift up to defend the weak and lift up the poor. And so that's an important part of any healthy society is that we see that we're all in it together and that, uh, but for the grace of God, go I. So that, that helps us recognize that, you know, our neighbor who maybe is not doing so well uh, needs a helping hand. Um, and, you know, too much we live in a society that's very now dominated by a kind of meritocracy. And there's good aspects of that. You know, it means that talented people can succeed in our society. But the downside is the tendency to think that achievement is the be-all and end-all of life. And it can make people look up, you know, and not down. Um, and and we, as Christians, you know, we Jesus tells us, you know, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the prisoner. So we're urged to toe down to the people who are below us, not just up to the people who can pull us higher. I wonder, you use the word unity. Is it as much striving toward making America unified or maybe a deeper, greater sense of solidarity? And I ask that question, Doctor, because we live in a pluralistic society. We've always had differing religious views, certainly differing political parties. There were times throughout American history when there was much that might have divided us in the sense of presenting challenges or roadblocks to unity, and yet we were able somehow to find a sense of solidarity. I think, for example, of World War II. Well, World War II was a battle that was won not by Republicans or Democrats or conservatives or liberals or Protestants or Catholics or Jews. It was a war that was won by Americans because we found a common enemy that gave us a sense of solidarity. Right. Well, hopefully we can find that we don't need an enemy. I mean, certainly in times of trial, you know, we find our common ground. But, you know, in some ways, we're, aren't we kind of in a time of trial in our country right now? You know, the economic changes of our society over the last generations have put a tremendous amount of stress on the social contract. Um, we see kind of an upsurge in racial tensions in spite of all the progress of the last two generations. And so there's a, you know, I think that the, this current electoral cycle and the amount of anti-establishment votes, whether it's for Sanders or Trump, does suggest our society is unhappy and that uh, we need to, um, we need to join together in order to solve our problems as a country. And, and so you're, I think you're right. I mean, in the book, one of the things that I talk about is the false god of diversity and i mean it makes some sense at one level you can't you can't be united with people that you're not present to and so it makes some sense to think about well wait a minute am i really present to my fellow citizens you know to people from different backgrounds but ultimately diversity is a means to an end which is solidarity or unity and we've lost sight of that we we make diversity an end in itself as if having all you know a menu of different folks somehow makes a society one. It doesn't. Uh, we have to be shoulder to shoulder, striving towards a common end in order to be a, to be a united society. Have we um, of recent generations then, Doctor, in your opinion, maybe um, built an idol, made ideology of multiculturalism in a sense then that leaves us with no shared common culture? I mean, I'm thinking that if we have no common ground upon which we can build together, because we spend more time elevating or celebrating the difference 
as opposed to the things that we have in common, that trying to find that common ground upon which then we can move forward as a people, as a nation, becomes very troubling and difficult, doesn't it? I think that's quite right. And, you know, I've become kind of bitter over the last few years about multiculturalism. You know, I travel around and you chat to people, ordinary Americans, from many different backgrounds. You know, most of them are very proud to be American, and and they feel a sense of common purpose. You know, there's there are plenty of people who died in Iraq from all kinds of different backgrounds, and and I resent the fact that our leadership class feeds young kids in high school this sort of multicultural ideology that denies them a vocabulary to talk about their shared love of our country. Uh, and I, I think that the leadership class, I'm a little bit, I'm getting more and more cynical. I think that the leadership class does that in part, maybe unwittingly, because uh, if you deny, if you deny ordinary people a kind of shared focal point of unity, then they'll never challenge you in your position of leadership, right? You atomize people, you deracinate them, you disorient them, you 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 sow grievance, and this this will this will prevent people from from ordinary people from unifying to you know take charge of their own country. And I think you see a little protest. We've, we're in the midst of a protest against that whole process, aren't we? Absolutely so. And of course, as the old adage, you know, divide and conquer. And we know certainly from a from a spiritual standpoint, the enemy of our souls seeks to do just that. And if uh, Satan can be about the business of dividing us, it is very easy then to find that a house that is divided against itself, what does Scripture tell us? Well, that house will fall. If you've just joined us, our visit today with... Dr. R.R. Reno. The book is called Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society. We'll get to the meaning of that title in a moment. I also want to spend a bit of time looking at observations made by a number of theologians. One of my favorites, Dr. Uh, the late Dr. Francis Schaeffer, who give warnings about the end result of what it means to live in a uh, postmodern or more specifically put post-Christian society. Is that where we find ourselves today? And how can we return back to our Christian roots? We'll get back to more of our conversation with Dr. R.R. Reno as Lifeline continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 